I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. Welcome back to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. I'm your host for this episode. My name is Dan, and this conversation uh, is pretty important, but also I believe not necessarily talked about very often. Today, we are talking about uh, male survivors of sexual assault and violence. And I have with me a licensed clinical mental health counselor, a therapist who has worked with male survivors. Uh, Their name is Papillon DeBoer. Poppy, Poppy, thank you for joining me today. You got it. Thanks so much for having me. So if let's start with who you work with and why it's specifically that uh, that crowd uh, of survivors. How did you get into this work? Sure. So I started actually as an intern with a local nonprofit here in Asheville, North Carolina called Our Voice, which serves survivors of sexual trauma with free counseling, with court advocacy. They do prevention and education in the schools, all kinds of really, really good stuff. I just sort of randomly ended up there as an intern and uh, loved the culture there. Just such great people. And as I did one semester and then another semester of internship, discovered that I was good at it um, due to my own experience as being a survivor. You know, not something that I ran in with a flag, I'm going to save people, but oh, here I am in this random spot. And actually my experiences help inform this work. So they hired me right outside of grad school. We loved each other so much that they offered me this contract position for a year, helping to build up their male survivor program. And so with that, there were a bunch of objectives of seeing X number of male clients individually, doing X number of uh, male survivor groups, and doing X number of presentations on how sexual trauma affects men, cisgender men. Um, Quick stat one in six cis males report an abusive sexual experience before the age of 18. And that figure remains steady across decades, across a lot of different studies. And that's just guys who actually talk about sexual abuse. So the number is probably higher than one in six. And why don't we talk about it? What have you found in your work that stops men from talking about their trauma? Shame, fear, Um, I think just in general, it's sort of like a dark underbelly of our society as well. Um, Guys wait an average of 25 years before they tell one person about the abuse, and that person is usually an intimate partner. Um, And even sometimes when they do 
tell whether it's a parent or caretaker, you know, and are dismissed um, or as an adult, even when they tell, I've had um, a number of guys say that they confided in a friend. And the first thing that friend says is you can't be around my kids, which is just so devastating, you know, because we also have this myth that somehow being a survivor of sexual abuse means that you're going to be a perpetrator. And so people specifically look at males like that. And it's really, really unfortunate. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of reasons. So, so much to unpack. My mind goes in a million different places. So, so here we are as a society. I mean, we already victim shame in so many ways, but then in particular male victims, that would be our, our collective response because you're a survivor you can't be around my kids mm-hmm. how how uh isolating that is and just terrible my gosh what so let's back up a little bit here if, if i could let's let's talk about what that sexual assault looks like for men um you know i my mind goes to and and i'm i'm also a survivor uh, i have my own experience with trauma and so i know what it looked like for me I know what it looks like in maybe media, different, you know, whether it's news coverage or movies or TV shows or whatever. And so we think of men perpetrating against men. So it's this, this particular stereotype, possibly. What have you, what have you found is kind of the sexual assault story that you're hearing from survivors, male survivors? Sure. Great question. So Yeah. A number of things come to my mind. Um, One is that one of the most common phrases that we use is unwanted or abusive sexual experiences. And that kind of broadens the scope. You know, when we think about sexual assault, our minds immediately go to, you know, worst case scenario, it's a stranger, it's violent, it's in an alley. But most commonly the perpetrator is known to the survivor. They're a member of the family. Um, for female survivors, it tends to be someone in the family for male survivors. It tends to be someone directly related to the family, you know, an uncle, um, a trusted family friend, a coach, something like that. Um, I've actually started using the term sexualized violation because there is sort of like a violation of a boundary. It may not be directly sexual as in like penetrative, but it might be sexualized, you know, forced Mm. kissing, stuff like that. Mm. All right. And so, you know, there's a whole range of experiences, um, you know, from, I mean, I I don't want to get too graphic, but it's not always penetrative. You know, it can be forced kissing, forced touching. It can be. Um, even sharing porn, like showing porn, an adult showing porn to a child is considered sexual abuse and will um, launch a DSS case. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I appreciate you not getting so graphic, um, but it is important to, to, you know, name some of this, right? I mean, I wouldn't have necessarily years ago thought of showing pornography as sexualized violence. <clears throat> especially and you say adult to a child. I mean, that could be an 18 year old to a 12 year old. That isn't necessarily some 50 year old uncle who is showing porn to his, you know, like, I mean, it could be that too. It could be all these things. So it's, 
Mm -hmm. It covers the gamut, I understand. Yeah. And, you know, depending on where you live, county to county, state to state, the age range between offender and survivor varies. You know, in some places it could be a 13-year-old showing porn to a seven-year-old as well. Mm -hmm. That would be considered sexual abuse. Yeah, I tell you, the I have children and they're 14 and 15 right now. And to, to think about that world for them is so scary, whether it's phones, computers, just, I mean, it used to be just a magazine. I mean, just like a magazine or a tape that you had to give, but now it's so prevalent. Yeah. Does it's that right there at your fingertips? Yeah. Does, does that make it worse? Like, are we, are you seeing it more often? Is it easier, more easily accessible? What is that doing to our society? That I'm not sure I could say, except that I also see a lot of guys with porn addiction because mm -hmm. it is so readily available. And actually it has um, worse effects on the nervous system as far as that sort of like reward and then let down cycle. Um, there's some pretty good TED talks on it. Mm. So porn isn't just necessarily this thing that adults can like just let the adults do what they want to do. There are things about it that are detrimental to us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's like with anything, you know, um, yeah. alcohol can be helpful or hurtful. It depends on appropriate use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Poppy, I want to ask you this question based on what, you know, and again, I've come a long way in my life. Um, awareness, and, and understanding and empathy and also experience. Uh, and, and I remember hearing this joke when I was younger because men are tend to males tend to be so sexualized. The air quotes joke is you can't rape the willing. How much of a, of a detriment is that to us when that's our idea that, well, you know, you can't rape a man because they're just because they, they want it. Right. Has that been something that you've heard? Have you had to battle that stereotype? When I say that, what, what comes to your mind? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of um, male survivors and, and survivors of any gender really struggle with this as far as, so we are physical beings and our bodies are wired, you know, they're grown to respond to uh, sensation, you know, like if it gets really hot, we're going to start to sweat. You know, if we're experiencing some form of sexualized touch, even if our emotions don't want it, even if our psyche doesn't want it, our body is wired to respond. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so to, to rewind a little bit and answer this question, female perpetration, the rates are really high, depending which study you look at. Um, I'll cite one. I don't have the reference in front of me. I think one of the, I think it was maybe Stemple and Flores with an S. Um, but in this sort of overview of female perpetration, one study looked at incarcerated juveniles, okay, um, of both genders. And incarcerated juveniles, when they reported sexual assault perpetrated on them in jail, the rate of female perpetration was 68%, whether wow. that was a guard or another inmate. All right. So it actually flipped the other way where females were more likely to be a perpetrator um, in, in a jail setting. Okay. 
And so for survivors of either or any gender whose bodies are responding to the abuse, that's just a natural thing. And it's something that a lot of folks need to work through in therapy because they feel like if my body responded, that means that I want it, but that's absolutely not true. Thanks for clarifying. I mean, it's something that I've heard, but it's, it's, it's good to hear it the way you said it, Poppy. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about why men don't typically recognize or why we don't get help. Why is it hard for us to recognize sexual assault as, as males? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think part of it is that because we have this picture of violence in our mind around rape, that coercion you know, and uh, perhaps less invasive types of sexual abuse don't automatically click that that is an assault. Um, Another reason I think is that, you know, so many perpetrators are good at grooming the survivor, especially when they're a child or a teenager, you know, with attention, gifts, um, gentler at first, boundary crossing, tickling, stuff like that. I think by the time it kind of escalates into an actual sort of sexualized behavior, often the survivor is convinced that this is just sort of part of a relationship, right? And it's not necessarily assault, um, which is messed up because the perpetrator has groomed them into that space. Mm -hmm. How do we, so I'm an uncle. My family is physical appropriately physical we tickle or the kid may sit on our lap or whatever when you say that we're that like that tickling could be a grooming behavior i my, my, i feel defensive i get on edge i go well, wait a minute i'm like that's not how do we walk that line what do we do that's a great question you know, tickling, I tickle my kids, you know, and with them, when they say stop or no, then it stops, hmm. right? That's one signifier. Another is like, who's doing the tickling? You know, I mean, I can remember when I was a kid being over at a friend's house um, and there was some guy living with them who started tickling my friend, Andy, who's you know, junior high age. And I thought like, that's just kind of a little, a little weird. Hmm. So like, what is the relationship? Is it a close family member or is it a a stranger or a teacher? Why would a teacher be tickling a kid? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think, and something that made me think when you said that is consent language, understanding consents, talking about the stuff with your kids. If, you know, an uncle is tickling you and you don't like it and you say stop and he doesn't stop. That's a problem. We'll have a conversation. Um, And then teaching our kids to also respect that consent language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We had this book that I really liked um, that we uh, raised our kids with are raising our younger kid with too. Um, It's something like I'm the boss of my body. Like they get to choose. And of course, sometimes there's a little backlash. I'm like, will you help me with the dishes? I'm the boss of my body. You don't get to tell me what to. Oh, kids. Oh. But good for them, right? You know, yeah. like better yeah. to err on that side and have conversations about it than them not understand their own autonomy. Yeah. And, and I've heard over the last few years, I've heard the, the, the conversation turn to hugging. 
right? You know, I grew up with, well, give your, give your grandma a hug, give your uncle a hug, give your aunt a hug, like this kind of thing. And it was, right. it was very much like, that's the kind of family that we are. We are a hugging family. And I never felt uncomfortable. I never felt like it's okay. Now I understand too, though, that in the same sense, some people are, and to make it like an unwritten rule isn't necessarily okay either. And so I feel like we're talking more about this kind of stuff in the world. I mean, are you seeing more awareness in your conversations with the, that you, you know, you have your own podcast. Are you seeing more awareness in the world? I think so, you know, around, you know, just asking consent, can I give you a hug, you know? And also I live in a pretty liberal bubble in Asheville, North Carolina, you know? And mm -hmm. so I'm definitely seeing that kind of consent culture here. Mm -hmm. um, I mentioned a, a podcast, so I'll, I'll hop on that real quick as we continue the, just the conversation, just the, the informal chat here, Poppy. Uh, you have a, a podcast. Talk a little bit about that. It's called Am I Broken? Survivor Stories. Um, share a little bit about that if you would. Sure. Thanks for the invitation. So this started out of some work I was doing with Our Voice. Um, uh, a colleague and I designed and held a male survivor's retreat for guys who had been through individual therapy, who had been through group therapy. And the rules in those scenarios were they didn't talk about the story of what happened, you know, specifically. So we're not jumping into the deep end of the pool of trauma. Somebody might say, you know, it was my aunt or somebody might say I was five, but that's as far as we went. So then we designed this retreat for guys who are ready to tell their story in a really safe container with each other. And also to do some ritual work around processing through what happened to them and letting it go or burning it or whatever we ended up doing. And so during the first retreat, we're all sitting in circle. And when one guy is sharing, you know, they had up to an hour to share the story of their abuse and whatever level of detail they wanted. We had, you know, put on the brake signals. If anybody got overwhelmed, you know, very well attended to. So this guy's finishing up his story. And another guy turns to him and says, wow, that was so incredible. Your story is so powerful. I felt like I was listening to a podcast and I went, oh my God. Yeah. And so um, I wrote a proposal and the executive director approved it. And so I started interviewing uh, male survivors about the story of what happened to them. Um, and you know, how it continued to impact them today and what had been helpful in their healing journey. And so that was the format as it developed. I did a, a first season with male survivors and then took a break over the summer. And um, I've got a couple seasons in mind. Um, at some point, I'd like to do a season featuring trans and non-binary survivors who actually have the highest rates of uh, sexual abuse and assault of any gender. It's uh, one in two. And that ranges up to the 60% um, range, often wow. because of their gender identity. So that's a, that's a future season I'd like to do. Currently, the season underway is um, mental health professionals who are also survivors. What happened to them? How did they heal? And how does it impact their work as a, a therapist or a caseworker? And it's just been a really great season so far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I've listened a little bit uh, as I was introduced to you and discovered it and it is very powerful. 
Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the trans and non-binary communities uh, here in a minute. Um, what, but before we get there, I want to kind of wrap up the male side of it. Yeah. What the cisgender male side of it, what advice or healing guidance do you give to male survivors specifically? That's a great question. Um, you know, obviously I have a biased perspective and that's, you know, let's do some therapeutic work, you know, let's, it's based in this relationship. This is a space that you can explore what it's like to trust somebody with the story. It's my job to hold a safe space. You know, here are the, the safety templates as far as who you talk to. If you know, you're uncomfortable about something, here's my supervisor, here's my license, you know, um, so I think individual therapy is really useful. Group therapy is really useful. And, you know, for anyone listening, there should be, if you live in or near a major city, even sometimes smaller cities and more rural counties, there is a rape crisis center and those places will offer free counseling, even if it's something that happened to you long ago or happened to you in childhood. So I'm a big fan, you know, I know therapy isn't for, for everyone. You don't have to talk about what happened to you in order to heal. Um, but what happens to us is when we are sexually abused, assaulted, or go through any type of trauma, our nervous system gets dysregulated. Okay. And so we end up having anxiety, which is the fight flight response, or we end up having depression, which is the freeze response. Even shame is a nervous system dysregulation. And so there are specific tools that we can learn to help ourselves regulate, to live a happier, um, more full and nourishing life without even having to talk specifically about what happened. Hmm. Interesting that I've never heard that said before, that you don't have to talk about it to heal. Not that I thought necessarily that you had to, but I've never heard that said before, especially from a counselor. Um, instead of talking, there are other resources we could use. Like what, what would we do if, if we think therapy isn't my thing? What should, what should be my next step then, do you think? Sure. So there are podcasts, you know, um, there are books. There's some great books. Um, the Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-O-L-K, is one where he talks about how trauma impacts the nervous system and some different ways that we can heal, including stuff like yoga, which helps um, regulate our nervous system. There's a great book called Complex PTSD by Pete Walker, where he addresses uh, any kind of trauma and how it impacts us and all different kinds of exercises that we can try mentally, physically, emotionally, et cetera, just to help ourselves get through the healing process. Hmm. I'll include some of those links in the show notes. So make sure you look at the basismi.org uh, show notes there. Um, so Poppy, you talked about the trans community, non-binary genders. While this episode is specifically about male survivors, the work that you do with the trans community and non-binary genders. Um, when you said it's one and two as high as 60%, that just broke my heart and it blew my mind at the same time. Yeah. What can we do as a society to help that community feel included, feel taken care of? What can we do to help? 
Great question. I'm really glad you're asking. So there's a whole range of things that we can do. One is to ask people's pronouns when you meet them. You know, just because someone looks what we might interpret as we've been socialized to be male doesn't necessarily mean that they identify as male. And so asking other people's pronouns when we meet them and offering our own, even if we're cisgender and we use the pronouns we were pretty much given at birth, that shows to someone who's trans or non-binary that we are thinking about gender and we are thinking that our way is not the only way that we're open, that we're receptive. Um, you know, I was really feeling during the pandemic, especially like, what can I do? What can I do? And uh, I ended up setting up a, a monthly donation to an organization that supports trans women of color um, with housing, with uh, finding jobs, with just kind of basic needs stuff, you know, so we can find organizations like that and just make a little bit of a donation every month. That really helps. Um, and then we can educate ourselves. You know, there are plenty of books and podcasts out there on gender, gender identity, trans issues, you know, and of course, as we saw during the last administration, not that I want to get too political, but there is a real sustained attack on trans rights. And um, now that the administration has flipped, they're, uh, they are signaling more support for the LGBTQ uh, community. And so, you know, we can write or call or email our Congress people, our senators, and uh, just let them know that we support the trans and non-binary community. Excellent. And, and in, in addition, does it help then to just think of the mantra of believe survivors for those who have been traumatized, whatever community they're in, we just need to believe those survivors, huh? Absolutely. Yeah, that was that was a, a cultural piece that uh, that I walked into at Our Voice is we always start with believing survivors because, you know, so typically survivors are dismissed, they're shamed, they're not believed. So let's start with believing survivors. Um, false reports and false accusations, the actual percentage of that is so small, so tiny. Um, and given how survivors are treated, we really need to just start by believing. Poppy, is there anything that I didn't ask in relation to this conversation or anything else uh, that you'd like to make sure our listeners walk away with? What kind of, what kind of last piece of advice can we talk about? That's a great question. Um, you know, oddly enough, I could talk about sexual trauma for hours. So I'm sure we could keep going. I'm a real hit at parties, you know, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I think you asked some really great, some really great questions and, uh, and we hit some really good solid foundations. Um, yeah, I guess I would just say, you know, if, if someone confides in you, the listener, um, that something happened to them, it's really important to, to support them, to say things like, I believe you, to say, thank you for telling me to ask, how can I help or support you? What do you need? Anything like that. Um, you can offer to hook them up with resources like we've talked about on this program. You know, you can Google the name of your town or city and rape crisis center. You can also visit rainn.org. That's the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. They also have links to local resources. Um, it is not helpful to 
ask questions about what happened to ask for more detail. That can sound like we're interrogating the survivor or we don't believe them and want to check the facts. It is not helpful as much as we might be angry to say, I'm going to go uh, beat up that person or I'm going to go wipe them off the face of the planet. That's also not helpful to the survivor. Just be with them. Just say, I believe you. I'm here with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for being a part of this conversation, Poppy. Um, listeners, again, yeah, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. And again, uh, a podcast, Am I Broken? Survivor Stories. If you're a listener of this show, uh, I believe that those survivor stories will be very powerful as well and may help you find some history, some history, some some hope and some some light there. So go listen to their podcast on that. Poppy DeBoer, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800-828-2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it, all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.